Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. A predator glides through the water. Sleek and streamlined, its rounded torpedo-like shape is designed to reduce resistance. Its dense bones keep it below the surface as it propels itself down into the depths with strong paddle-like appendages, generating thrust on every up and down stroke. It's cold in the water, but this predator has adapted to that too. A dense, smooth, insulating coating, fat stores under the skin, a shape that reduces surface area and a specialised blood vessel system. It hones in on its prey. There's no contest. The prey is swallowed whole. Satiated, as the evening closes in, the predator returns to shore and waddles up the beach. Kia ora, nō mai haramai ki te au hurahanga. Welcome to Our Changing World, ko Clegg and Cannon Thane. Why are penguins so cool? They have this kind of absurdity about them that's so very endearing, but they're also quite good at what they do. To answer this, we need to travel into the penguin past and find out just how they got to be the rugby balls with wings that they are today. We'll be following the fossils with an expert guide. I was that dinosaur-obsessed kid. This is Dr Daniel Thomas, a researcher at Massey University. I was a student at the University of Otago and had a very inspirational supervisor in Ewan Fordyce. And Ewan had described many groups, but was starting to explore a lot more penguin evolution when I was going through as a student, and I was enraptured with the project that he was describing. The project was about how penguins conserve heat underwater through an interesting blood vessel set up in their wings, but we'll get back to that later. Today, Daniel mostly researches penguin fossils, which Aotearoa New Zealand has a lot of. This is an amazing country to work on for fossil penguins. The patriot in me says it's the best country in the world to work on for fossil penguins, but I wouldn't want to upset my international colleagues. Look, Daniel doesn't want to flex on his fellow researchers. And yes, penguin fossils are found in other countries down south, such as South America, Africa and Antarctica. But the facts speak for themselves. We have the oldest fossil penguin. We've got a continuous fossil record in essence from when that oldest one turns up. We can track them well through time. That's a really important part of why penguins are such an amazing group to work on. This was the country in which the first fossil penguin that was ever described was found. And so we've got effectively the oldest fossil itself and then Taxonomically, the oldest recognised penguin is, is from this country. So, yes, it is a certainly a great country to work on for fossil penguins. I still feel like he's holding back. Penguin fossil diplomacy at its finest here. So, 
where do we begin our story of penguin evolution? Maybe let's start with where we end up. Today, what have we got? In terms of modern penguins, there are around 18 to 20. And the number does move a little bit depending on how you view some populations and some subspecies. So sometimes they are lumped together and so we end up with fewer species and sometimes they are split apart. And that's just about understanding the variation that there is. But as as a conservative number is somewhere around 18 to 20. And our penguins today look more or less the same. Now, I don't want to insult any penguins out there, but it's a very similar penguin template. Uh, Today, yes. Um, We've got little ones and bigger ones, and they don't perfectly scale. So if we take our littlest one and scale that up in size, it wouldn't be exactly the same shape as our biggest ones today, but it wouldn't be too far off. So there's a conservative shape amongst our living penguins and our a moderate uh, range in size amongst our living penguins. Look, I'm not trying to throw shade here. I know there are differences. The Adele go for that classic just black and white look, while the erect crested have that yellow headpiece punk rocker thing going on. But think about the difference between a budgie and a kakapo, just two of the roughly 400 parrot species in the world. How did we end up with modern penguins all having such a similar design? This is where we're starting to get into why this is an amazing group to work on, because we have that fossil record to study that shape trajectory through time. And that's, it might seem a little bit odd, of course we have fossils of things, but actually for birds and for many groups, we actually can't track them in particularly fine detail back through time. And it doesn't take us too far back into time to realise that actually what we see today amongst modern penguins is just a subset of a much broader diversity that existed in the past. First, let's be clear. Penguins are birds. Penguins have flying ancestors. If we are thinking about the ancestor that then gives rise to the penguin lineage, well, that ancestor also gives rise to uh, albatrosses and petrels and shearwaters. And it's at that step going from that shared ancestor with albatrosses through to penguins, that's where flightlessness, the loss of the ability to fly in air probably comes in. Note how he says flying in air here, because penguins evolve a new trick, flying in water. Penguins are amazing in that they do something that birds that fly in air don't do, and that is they generate thrust on both the downstroke of the uh, wing, but as well as the upstroke. So most flying birds will um, generate all of their lift, all of their thrust, by uh, pulling their wings towards their body. And then they effectively tuck their wings close to themselves and reset their wings back into that lifting position. Penguins don't. Penguins have a a modified paddle. And so they are essentially rowing um, their wings through the water and generating lift on both the, the down and the upstroke. So they are better flyers than the birds that fly through air, in my opinion. There's that penguin pride coming out. So at some stage, we went from a flying-in-air ancestor bird to a flying-in-water penguin-type bird. When and how did that happen? The earliest penguins that we have are around 62 million years, and I recognise that's 
just a number, but to put that into context, at 66 million years, that is when the non-avian dinosaurs disappeared from the planet. So a meteorite hit. There was a fairly extensive global event. And shortly after that, the T-Rex type animals and various other of these types of dinosaurs disappear. Not all dinosaurs, of course, because birds are dinosaurs, right? So it's the non-avian dinosaurs. And that's 66. We've got no evidence for penguins at that point, but then a mere four or so million years later, and we are now in Zealandia, this fragment of Gondwana that has broken away and is drifting north, and it is now an isolated set of islands, and it is here that these penguins are living, and they are exploring the oceans. At this stage, they cannot fly in the air, so they are what we term an obligate marine diver. They must go into the ocean to find food. And up to that point, we actually have no idea about their history. So it's that 62 million year number, give or take, where our story starts. Those first fossils are from Canterbury, given the name Waimanu, water bird. Because of these finds, modelling that looks at the geographical movement of penguins through time suggests Zealandia as the ancestral home for penguins. And these fossils show one key early change. Typical flying birds have hollow bones. That's uh, part of the general body plan of aerially flying birds to make the animal as light as possible so it can has as little mass to lift off the ground. But penguins don't want to fly in the air. Penguins have dense bones. And it's for essentially the opposite reason. These are animals that don't want to be light. Um, They actually want to be effectively neutrally buoyant in water so that when they are swimming downwards, all of their thrust is going to be directed downwards. And then when they're swimming upwards, they can have um, all of that motion directed upwards. So a very important adaptation that occurred essentially straight away in the history of penguins was having solid bones. And, as it turns out, these heavier bones aren't just helpful for flying through water. They're also very handy for paleontologists who want to study the history of penguin ancestors. The dense bones of penguins is actually why we have a fossil record. So they preserve really well and they resist all of the the crushing forces that are applied to them by sediment because, of course, these are animals that were out swimming in an ancient ocean. They died, they end up on the seafloor, and then they have sediment pile up on top of them. But those bones resist that. They survive through to modern day. So these 62-million-year-old penguin fossils from Canterbury have dense bones, ready to fly in water. But that's just part of the story, the rest of the shape of these bones is actually still reminiscent of their flying ancestors. So they're actually slightly odd-looking animals. They have you know, these, these thick bones of a diving bird, but they've got relatively slender bones of an animal that we would anticipate would actually still be flying in air. So uh, the earliest penguins on record are these, what we might think of as a transitional form. Four million years later, bones show even more adaptations for diving. And between six to 13 million years later is when fossils show the stiff wing joint forms that we see in modern day penguins. The wing has essentially become a fixed paddle powered by motion at the shoulder. It sounds like a long time, but 
it's actually happening uh, really quickly and it makes sense. There's a lot of pressure on these animals to head out and find food. It's the only place that they can get their food. And so, yeah, the, the forces of, of natural selection here are really uh, rapidly shaping penguin bodies in that early stage. So now we're at somewhere between 56 and 49 million years ago. Our proto-penguins are quite efficient divers, and evolution has been problem-solving another issue too, heat loss. Penguins are warm-blooded, and even if they were moving through relatively warm water, our proto-penguin would be losing body heat all the time. So they evolved one solution to help with that. Like other birds, penguins have an artery that takes blood from their heart to their wing. But the modification in penguins is this artery rises up, it runs past the shoulder, and as it starts to run down past the upper arm alongside the humerus, and if you think of a penguin, its flipper has a a black surface and a a white feathered surface. So we're now thinking about an artery that's running along underneath the skin on that white feathered surface. It divides. It divides into multiple small arteries that then run down the rest of the upper part of the wing, and they rejoin together and then carry on out to the rest of the wing. That split actually increases the surface area of the vessels. Instead of one large pipe, you've got a lot of smaller ones. But I hear you say, increase surface area. Isn't that bad for heat loss? The penguins are one step ahead of you, because right beside these smaller artery vessels, there are veins on their way back to the heart. So it goes like this. The blood that's leaving the heart is hot. It runs up past the shoulder, hot blood. It makes it through into the wing, still hot. And then it splits into those multiple um, arteries and it's hot, runs down in towards the rest of the wing. But what happens is those veins that are running alongside that split artery are carrying cold blood. And that heat from that uh, hot arterial blood, that heat transfers into that cold venous blood and is redirected back towards the body core. So that heat never makes it past the elbow, not really. Penguins are effectively uh, giving themselves cold wingtips. The heat never gets to the end of the wing to be lost to the water. Instead, it gets recycled back to the core of the penguin. This is the project that enraptured Daniel all those years ago at the University of Otago. Obviously, this blood vessel setup is easy to spot when you dissect a modern dead penguin. But how can you spot it in fossils? But what's really cool is that that set of arteries, and as it splits, is quite a bulky structure. And given the constraints of penguins having relatively slender wings that have water passing around them, that bulky structure can't just um, push out against the skin. So uh, penguins have an adaptation where there's actually a little groove in the bone itself so that that set of veins and arteries are recessed in against the wing. So you basically don't see it from the outside. That water flows around unperturbed. But that groove, that groove's really cool because we can find it in bones and in fossils. And so if we pick up a fossil and it has that groove, we can go, aha, this animal had that set of veins and arteries. This animal that lived tens of millions of years ago, we can know, well, we can have a good guess, uh, that it was uh, recycling its heat like this, that it was operating a uh, countercurrent heat exchange to stay warm in cold water. It's not a straight line from early proto-penguin to modern day. And remember, we're talking millions of years here, so the planet is changing too. 
We've got a hothouse period at around 56 million years ago when there would have been no polar ice caps. And though estimates of the timing vary, around 30 to 40-ish million years ago, there was the opening of the Tasmanian and Drake's passages, which meant Antarctica was now surrounded by water. This enabled the startup of the Antarctic circumpolar current and, it's been suggested, drove a host of evolutionary changes in marine mammals. And evolution is also just a big fan of tangents, twists and turns. And there are some cool ones in the penguin story. Something fascinating happens actually really early on, and that is penguins will reach their body size ceiling as far as we know it. In that earliest stage, we will get our first giants and then the biggest giants that we currently have any evidence for. That's right. About 55 to 60-ish million years ago, we find evidence of the giantest penguins. So what I mean by giants in terms of penguins is anything that's bigger than the living set of modern penguins. And so for us today, that is emperor penguin. An emperor penguin is an animal that reaches around a metre tall as an adult. Maybe it's around 35 kilograms. Emperor schmemperor. Fossil evidence suggests that in the past, some penguins were built much bigger, 1.3 metres tall, or even taller. And the body mass is scaling um, to the the cube of height, right? So as soon as we're talking about a a penguin that is 1.3, 1.4 metres tall, these things are getting up to 120, 140 kilograms. Like They are huge animals. And so that is something that happens very early on in their history. So the bigger they're getting, the more food they're needing to find. And so that's something that we actually don't understand really well at all about these giants is exactly what type of foraging niche were they exploiting? Because we can't look to our modern penguins to answer that one. Were they diving to some particular depth? Do they have a a different foraging behavior or strategy than the ones that we have today? And it's It's just unknown, it's unclear what drove them to be that big. That 150 kg upper ceiling for giant penguins that Daniel mentioned is from a fossil called Kumimanu from North Otago, estimated to be from about 59.5 to 55.5 million years ago. Aotearoa more than pulls its weight in the giant penguin fossil field. They've been found in both the North and South Island. But the earliest evidence for a giant penguin does come from elsewhere, Seymour Island in Antarctica, estimated from between 65 to 59 million years ago. Now, it's important to note here that we are more likely to find giant penguin fossils than other fossils because, well, the bones are bigger and bigger, more robust bones are more likely to be preserved. Among the last of the giant penguin fossils that have been found dated to around 27 million years ago, is one that Daniel and one of his students worked on. 15 years after its discovery, a 30 million year old penguin fossil has been identified as a completely new species. The preserved remains were first found by the Hamilton Junior Naturalist Club back in 2006. Now Massey University researchers say the bird, while closely related to another giant penguin, appears to be just a bit more leggy. This giant penguin, discovered in Kafia, is named Kairuku Waiwairoa, the long-legged diver for food. 
This is not to say it's like a heron or something. It's just that there was an original Kairuku giant penguin species described, and this version was then shown to have slightly longer legs. Evolution exploring different body shapes. Which is what paleontologists find across the penguin fossil record. When we look to the fossil record of uh, Zelandia, of Aotearoa, and we are finding these fossil penguins, we are not finding the same one time and again. We are finding different forms, different um, shapes of, the, of these. And the way we are telling that they're different species is we can compare their bones and we can start to understand, well, what is the amount of variation that we would expect to find in any one bone of a penguin species? And so if we then take the same bone, the wing bones or leg bones, and, and compare those with um, those fossils and see that actually they're wildly different shapes, then that lets us know that actually probably these were coming from different species. And this has happened many, many times. There are probably twice or more the number of fossil penguins that have been found than there are of living penguins. What's really cool here is there isn't actually that much room to move. So penguins are constrained in a couple of ways. They are warm-blooded, so they have to have a particular body size and body shape in order to retain enough warmth while they're swimming. So that's a constraint on them straight away. They are swimming through water. Water is dense, it is viscous, so that shapes their body as well. They are uh, what's referred to as fusiform. They are rugby ball shaped and they have uh, wings that are shaped by the fact that they are swimming through a very dense fluid. So there are very real architectural restrictions on the body shape of a penguin. And yet we actually do see some exploration of that body shape. We see um, in terms of body size, big ones and little ones, we see long legs and we see long beaks and we see uh, really stout arms and we see all sorts. We can think of this in terms of having a relatively narrow envelope around the possible shapes that they can explore. And as we go into our fossil record, we can actually find them and start to map out well, how much of that shape space have they actually explored. And that's phenomenal. It lets us to start think, well, what was actually driving that exploration? This kind of testing different shapes out probably happened for many other species with their own constraints, but we just don't have the same fossil record for them. So where are they, I hear you cry? Where are the giant penguins and the longer-legged penguins and the penguins with the weird beaks? I'm sorry to say, they're gone. All but one. In terms of our penguin timeline, we talked about 62 million years those are penguins, certainly, but those are our earliest penguins. And a lot will happen over time. And up to a point, we will have many penguins come and go, giants and little ones and what have you. And then all of that diversity essentially dies off through time, except for some species that will live 15 or so million years ago. And that species will give rise to all of the modern penguins that we have today. So it's a long history for penguins, but in terms of the ones that we have around today, it's actually not that far back. 
And again, Aotearoa has another important fossil to contribute. So if we think of all of our modern penguins today as being our essentially new penguins, there was some ancestor that lived 14, 15 million years ago, and its descendants include the penguins that live today. Then if we step back a little bit in time, there were other penguins, and they just don't have living descendants today. So that last step back, just before we give rise to all of our modern penguins. Well, that last step back was living here. So the last of the old, if you like, before we have this origin of the new. Modelling suggests that the most recent common ancestor to all modern penguins, termed crown penguins, may have lived in New Zealand. But the oldest known fossils of crown penguins are from South America. So there's still some discussion about where the penguins living today came from. Did they spread outwards from New Zealand or from South America. But if one ancestor spawned all these modern crown penguins, what happened to the rest of them? Our problem becomes the gaps between fossils. So I, you know, very humbly sit here and talk about how wonderful the fossil penguin record is. But it's it's wonderful relative to other groups. So it is a, a couple of fossils in this particular period of time, and then we might jump a few million years and find the next, and so on. And that's a wonderful fossil record. But it's a huge amount of time in between. And when we do find these fossils, we don't really have a good snapshot of the community that they're living in. So it's challenging to be confident about any driver that led to extinction. So what what that leads us to do is to step back and ask questions about, well, what else was happening at the time that these things became big or they declined or what have you? So we understand things like um, major changes in global temperature or circulation. But an important one is the rise of seals. So seals are actually a relatively young group in the grand scheme of things and seals emerge on the scene and then I lose my giant penguins from the fossil record or you know thereabouts and so there is an idea of potential competition there um, but there are other ideas as well um, perhaps it was changes in, in land area maybe something was happening on land we think of them as marine birds but they lay eggs Right, And so they have a terrestrial component. There is another constraint on this amazing group that suffers under all of these constraints. And so any changes that are happening on land as well as in the ocean can be a driver of uh, speciation or of extinction. We may never really know what happened to all the others, but it's clear that Zealandia was a home for penguins in their evolutionary past. And it continues to play an important role in the penguin present. From that one common ancestor, we now have six different types or genera of penguins. Aptenodites, the great penguins, emperor and king, brush-tailed penguins, Adelie, chinstrap and gentoo, little penguins like our Cordora, the little blue penguins, banded penguins found in South America and Africa, like the Galapagos penguin, crested penguins, of which New Zealand has a few, tawaki, snares, erect-crested, rockhopper, and the last is Megadiptes, a group that contains just one penguin. And Megadiptes are our hoiho, our yellow-eyed penguin. And we only find that type of penguin, the yellow-eyed type penguin, here. So it's not a genus that we share with any other part of the world. 
The crested penguins that we have here, Tawaki and others, we have our own endemic species, certainly, but we find crested penguins in other parts of the world. We find those king, um, those Aptenodides penguins in various parts of the world. Eudiptula, our little penguins, Corora, we of course share with Australia, right? So there are these geographic spreads of these types of penguins, but we have our own, that is Megadiptes. Thanks to Dr. Daniel Thomas, Senior Lecturer in Zoology and Ecology at Massey University, Albany. Ko Clergen Kananaho, Te Kaiho Tu o Tene Hotaka, I Afina Mai a William Ray, Rawa Ko Ellen Rikers. I produced this one with help from William and Ellen. Sound engineering was by William Saunders, and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Kia faia iteo hurihanga ite tahi taupanga payake kia kwe. Follow the Our Changing World podcast on your favorite podcast app. Our show webpage is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And if you've got feedback for us, you can email ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz or find us on Facebook or X where we are at RNZ Science. Tina koe i mai. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Have a great week. Kia pai te wiki. 